Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Actual Facts, a documentary podcast. Uh, I am Jason B. True, one of the hosts of this fine program. And with me today is my super good pal, Eric Stoyer. Uh, hey, man. Hey, how are you doing today, Eric? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you. I'm doing pretty You know what? Actually, I'm not going to lie to you. I am, I am doing good, but it is extremely hot here. So I don't, And I do not like the heat. Yeah, it's it's super hot here in L.A. as well, and conveniently, um, I have to turn off my air conditioning so uh, the microphone doesn't pick it up for this podcast, so uh, I'm blaming you. Uh, podcaster people problems. <laughs> uh, anyway, how's yeah? How's your week been going, man? Have, have, you, uh, have you had a chance to check out anything uh, super noteworthy or memorable this week? Mm, yeah, well, you know, we did, uh, I know you, you and I have talked a little bit about this, we're texting quite a bit about it, but we did catch up and watch the finale of the rehearsal, the Nathan Fielder show on yeah. HBO, full, full series, I think, uh, is it six episodes? They're all streaming. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, if you if you've uh, read much about it, you probably know that it is a difficult show to explain exactly what it is. But I found it to be just ridiculously compelling, interesting. Keeps making me think about stuff. I don't yeah. know. I don't know much to say about it, but I, I would recommend anyone who hasn't seen it to watch it. And uh, I won't go into too many details about it because I feel like it's best if you watch it kind of fresh. And maybe some point we can. Once it's uh, settled in even further into the culture, we can we can talk a bit more about it and give some details because I think uh, yeah. it is uh, an interesting conversation to have. And uh, I've I've actually sought out a few podcasts where people were talking about it just to get reactions and stuff. But yeah, uh, I would I, I think if anyone has not seen it, they should go in fresh watching it. What about you? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's it's interesting. You 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 hear people uh, talking about it, like it is you know, like you say, it's super it's super compelling. It's very thought provoking. It's uh, I mean, brilliant and like meta layers upon meta layers, and um, and you know, it's interesting. I, I I feel like people. I hear a lot of people making comments like it's like one of the most ingenious things I've ever seen, but I've ever seen. But I'm not sure how much I enjoyed it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's. I definitely will say I went in uh, thinking it would be a lot funnier than it is. It's, yeah. it's like it's sort of like it's funny at the beginning, and then it sort of settles into this tone that is interesting and and like it is funny, but not funny where you laugh. It's more funny where like. Wow, that's 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 uh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, deeply uncomfortable. Well, we're both we're both fans of uh, Nathan for you, of course, which has some of the absolute funniest shit of all time. And so, yeah, I, I think I did expect it to be a bit more funny, and there were lots of laughs, and, and but most of them were definitely uncomfortable <laughs>, laughs, and mm-hmm. and also the feelings of like, can't is this is this person really like this? Like you know, like right. th- those kind right. of. Those kind of moments, um, but yeah, a, a a very you know a super interesting show, and it's super interesting to see like um, you know I say like without giving too much away I guess or you know uh, like you just like you, you can tell that at the same time like he's creating like a super like like you know a very interesting and layered show that it does seem like um, Nathan is trying to personally work through some stuff and like there's a lot of very heavy themes um, that, that he's getting into and and you know and you can kind of you know and and this this whole project he's in it, it involves a lot of other people a lot of other actors including you know child actors and he, he gets in it's the situations that arise are, are super interesting and you can feel like you can feel throughout the series that he himself is sort of uh, reckoning with like the the actual scope and the actual reality of of the project that he, that is underway. And you can yeah. it seems like you can feel like he has this um, a a sort of growing sense of responsibility like for what he's doing like and to the other people that are involved. And it's just a really interesting evolution to kind of. To witness, I guess it's really absolutely, yeah. I mean, there, you know, the idea of a meta show, a meta, you know, it, it, there's meta documentaries. It's it's kind of the the form that this takes. It's sort of like a blend of a of a reality show, a documentary series, and art, kind of like an art film. I mean, there's, yeah, there's all, all, totally. all sort of like a pers- a personal essay almost. Um, there's elements of all that in there, and and it can be kind of a lazy trope to to rely on. Is is when you decide to do something that in a meta way, it can be something that you've seen a lot of times and just feel like it's a little bit tired. Why I, I feel like here it works very well for all the reasons you just said. It feels like you can see him grappling with some stuff that's going on with him personally. You can see 
um, implicit and in some cases explicit commentary happening about the nature of uh, involving people in things like reality shows or documentaries or just your projects and using them in your projects, your creations. So there's a lot there if you're interested in the creative process, if you're just interested in sort of the, the wild uh, ways that the brain and people, yeah. the way the brain works and people interact, um, I, I couldn't recommend it more highly. Yeah, I mean, either. Right? It's definitely one of the more interesting things I've seen in a long, long, long time. It's, it's really uh, fascinating. And yeah, though you said you said uh, about the show that, uh, you know, it's a uh, both documentary and um, art film. And in those in both of those, I think uh, those adjectives, they would uh, sort of apply uh, to to the to the movie we're, we're talking about today. Um, so later on, uh, I'm going to be talking to the director, uh, Bianca Stiegter, about her very powerful and uh, unique documentary, Three Minutes, A Lengthening. Um, the film is narrated by Helena Bonham Carter and produced by Steve McQueen, um, the filmmaker, not the character from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> and <laughs> so, uh, yeah, a little uh, background in the movie is that uh, a man named David Kurtz uh, was uh, a Jewish American who had immigrated from Poland as a child. And in 1938, uh, as an adult, um, I believe with his family, he took kind of a grand European vacation. And as part of that trip, he returned to his hometown of Nazielsk, Poland. And while he was there, he shot three minutes of 16-millimeter footage of the town and the members of the Jewish community in Nazelsk. Um, so some months later, uh, of course, this community would be almost completely erased by Nazi Germany. Um, so jump ahead to many decades later, uh, David Kurtz's grandson, Glenn, finds this three minutes of footage in a closet in their family home. And so he started doing research, and he went on to write a book called Three Minutes in Poland about the film and his grandfather and the town. And then a few years after that, uh, the filmmaker that uh, we'll be talking to today, Bianca Stiegter, would her herself find this book and the film and embark on her own film project. And, and with uh, a few very minor exceptions, the entire 70 minutes of this film is made up using only these original three minutes of footage that was taken by David Kurtz. So I will speak with uh, Bianca more about all that in a few minutes. Um, but first, I wanted to uh, chat with, with, with you a little bit more, uh, Eric. And I do have one question for you uh, today. And, you know, one of the interesting aspects of this film, of course, is that as I just mentioned, it's comprised entirely of found footage. And I was wondering, like, can you think of a, a book or a film or any kind of art that was made from, you know, quote unquote, found material that you enjoyed or was memorable to you in some way? So, yeah, I mean, you know, I got into hip hop very early in my music listening career. And one of the things I always found to be quite fascinating about it, of course, is that it recontextualizes old music. Uh, I think one of the things that's lost when people talk about sampling is that like, it's not just about taking something and you know, flipping it so that it has a new context. There's an element of that that is, of course, uh, inherent to sampling and remixing and creating tracks based on old music. But um, I've always found that like a really cool part about it is that it exposes you to things you just never would have heard otherwise. Like it actually is like, totally. yeah. you know, like, like it's like, it's like getting uh, information about things that existed that you just would never ever have encountered otherwise. Like, yeah. um, right alongside getting more deeply into hip hop as a kid, like it, it sent me out to go into record stores and find, uh, sample sources that were used. It actually, you know, got me interested in looking at records and just finding stuff that I could sample and turn into new things. Like it kind of, you know, really spawned my interest mm -hmm. Crate uh, digging, just, as they say in the biz. Crate digging, right? it's true. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> that's what it is. It's like, to me, it's always actually been about investigating and kind of creating your own library of knowledge. And, and uh, mm. so, so anyways, that, 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 you know, that, that, all that is the, is the sort of context for the, the album that I think of in, in particular, um, mostly because of the movie we're talking about here. Like, I, uh, there's obviously, like, sample-based albums that I think are more uh, important to the culture than this one. But DJ Shadow's Private Press, not mm. even one of my favorite albums necessarily. I just, I, I, do, I do like it a lot, but it, I think that the thing about it that reminded me, that, that, that this movie reminded me of just a bit, is that it's, um, it's, a, it's an album that, uh, it's a second album, and um, it, it, it sounds in a lot of ways like his first album, which is, you know, sort of a landmark sampling album. But the second one is a little bit more focused on the idea of these private press records as the name mm. of the album suggests so it's uh private press records are when you know back in the uh 
think it's like 60s and 70s, maybe even to some degree in the through the through the mid 80s. Um, there were many more vinyl presses set up in the U.S. Uh, and actually in probably local areas, no matter where right. you are in the world. Uh, now it's a very you know, there's just a handful of these of these vinyl presses that uh, exist around the world. But in, at one point, it was uh, a business that enough people could make money doing that they would, you know, you'd have one local to you, yeah. uh, or, at le- or at least somewhat. And so it was uh, not uncommon for uh, bands who weren't signed to record labels, they were just kind of a local band, to create records, and they were called private press records. Maybe you'd only make a hundred of them, a couple hundred of them, whatever. And I'm assuming, I'm assuming these were probably places that where it's like... Johnny's studio or whatever Johnny's yeah. records and so you go in and there's like the full package they'll record your stuff and press the records for you totally I, I think a lot of them did operate out of out of recording studios exactly yeah. part of the deal and uh, <laughs> so yeah DJ Shadow went around he's a you know obviously a massive record collector like really into obscure stuff um, finding really cool stuff and yeah. you know, letting people know about it and so this record, uh, it, it does include samples that are from bands that were signed to major labels and some some stuff that's a little bit more well-known, but a lot of it and the spirit of it is really inspired by uh, these private press records, records that are really obscure, but may, may in a lot of cases they've created really cool music, you know, that they, they contained really cool music yeah. uh, just by by bands that didn't quite uh, make it or have the same kind of production level that, uh, that some of the stuff that was on the radio did. So this is, you know, just it's like the equivalent of like, in uh, in the eighties, you know, people had demo tapes. Then people burned stuff to CDs. Then they had uh, MySpace pages, and and, and so on and so on. <laughs> yeah. uh, Bandcamp, and 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 now you can just get your stuff out there a lot more easily to everyone. But uh, but it, you know, yeah. at, a, at a at a point, it was um it was it was a lot harder to get your your creations out to people. So yeah, he kind of mined this. Uh, I don't know if it's a scene because it's so disparate, but he he um he he went out there and found found all these kind of rare recordings. Which um, again, I mean, it's it's maybe a little bit of a leap to make that comparison, but it did it did connect in my brain uh, that this yeah. film in a way you know it's like about finding this one piece of media that uh, before it was uh, possible to just take something on your phone and spit it out to everyone in the world uh, potentially to see it um, if you made something um, you might never have any audience for it and taking that uh, that that thing kind of digging it up and turning it into something new and yeah. giving it a context that makes it a little bit more contemporary and turning people on to something they may not know about otherwise uh, it feels important and um yeah, so that's that's the record that I thought of when uh, when I when I was uh, watching this film. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I guess I mean I guess there's one way to look at this film where it's it's like a very extended remix, right? Like yep, a, yep, yeah. it is. It's uh, you know, it feels like it's a collage in a lot of ways of the same thing over and over. It's, yeah. it's uh, it, pu- it pulls it apart. It focuses on certain faces inside the film. It uh, yeah. then then gives you the macro lens version, and then it kind of slows it down and plays it fast. I mean, it's it's just um. It, it's a it's a it's a true uh, truly remarkable thing to make something that is visually interesting mm. that is that is seventy minutes long that is only comprised of of three minutes of source material. Totally, totally. Yeah, I'm. Um, I was also trying to think of something that that I've seen it that was made of made up from found footage, and uh, one thing that came to mind was um, there was this short documentary film from two thousand six. It was. Uh, Comprised entirely of uh, black and white footage uh, shot in the late 1940s, um, and the title is, of course, uh, "Alien Autopsy." And um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, no, I, I, I did, I did watch the TV special where they talked about that, and they had oh, who, who among us has not? They they had you know Rick Baker in there, like literally sitting there like at a table just watching the film on a screen. He's like, yeah, well. No, it looks. I I just I couldn't tell you whether or not it's real. To be honest, totally credulous. Now, for people that don't know, Rick Baker, uh, special effects yes. genius, uh, yeah, pioneer. You. Yeah, yeah. So did. even 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 Rick Baker himself, Rick Baker, he, American Werewolf in London, Thriller. Yeah, I believe he did both those things. If I'm wrong, and about he that. he deemed this stuff legit. Too good to be. <laughs> well, what's funny is if you look at it now, it's actually like it's the the people that made it have admitted that oh, actually it was a reproduction of a film. We did have an original film, but it was damaged too badly, so we re- mm. we recreated what we saw in that film. And they say that like the, their finished product contained only a few frames of the original. <laughs> Like, why even? Yeah. Why, why even say that? Like it's just right. it's, anyway. Um, Rick Baker egg on your face. <laughs> uh, I will. I will say like all right. So you know, uh, 
speaking of, of found material and I guess space themed, uh, one thing I would recommend, and I, I don't, I won't say too much about this, was uh, from a few years ago, from 2019, um, the documentary Apollo 11, which is about the uh, Apollo 11 space launch and uh, sequel of Apollo 10. That's correct. I'm uh, sorry, not space, the shuttle launch, of course, and. Uh, <laughs> And and the prequel to Apollo 13 with Tom Hanks <laughs> and, uh, and uh, Gary Sinise, their dramatic reunion. A- anyway, uh, so anyway, it's it's really in that film is is made up entirely of audio and video footage from uh, the late 60s uh, leading up to and during the uh, Apollo mission. And, uh, and, and as part of during that process, they worked with, with NASA and, and they actually found like never before seen 70 millimeter footage of the launch and the, and the surrounding preparations and everything. And it's just like, I went and saw it in the theater and a 70 millimeter print. It was just a gorgeous, gorgeous looking thing. And, and it really, you know, made you feel like in the moment, like all of the anxiety of like, and, and how like actually astonishing it, the, a thing it was that was happening like you know like learning about it so far after the fact it's just like yeah people went to the moon but it's like nobody had ever done this like the, like these guys went there like really thinking there was a very good chance they would never make it back right and, right, and the amount right. of the amount of bravery and ingenuity is really an astonishing accomplishment um, that, you know, that people did on a soundstage somewhere. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I'm kidding, of course. They but, have uh, Rick Baker weighing on that one. Like, really yeah, not. yeah, right, right, right. No, I, no, you know, it did occur to me, though, that there's probably people who are like, yeah, moon landing was faked, you know, but uh, alien autopsy, now that shit, that is, that is <laughs> that, no, don't tell me that's not real. That was, they found that in Roswell. anyway uh (laughs) people are people are something else (laughs) they certainly are uh i guess i one other one other thing i I was thinking about as it relates to uh found material and and finding things was i was curious if if you had ever personally found uh it doesn't have to be a piece of art but found something in in life or in the world um that was uh, memorable to you or was interesting to you um one thing that, that comes to mind for me, uh, I, I guess I have to set this up a, a little bit, is uh, to uh, mention that, uh, so my, my dad, uh, Gary, uh, he died in 1997. It is uh, We actually hit the 25 years marker uh, just a few weeks ago, which is... Yeah, uh, which wow, is, man. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a wild thing to uh, wrap your head around for sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that was, you know, 97, and then, so kind of set this up um we would jump ahead like 12 years in time so i guess uh, around 2010 uh, i'm not 100 percent sure um but for some more background uh my uncle uh who's also named gary he lives here near where i live in southern california and there was a woman who lived across the street from him who had been sick with cancer for a long time and she had no family. And so my uncle, uh, being the great guy that he is, he helped her through all of the stuff at the end of her life, including her health and getting her affairs in order and all that. And so she ended up, when she passed away around 2010, um, I was there as they were kind of dealing with the stuff in the home. And I was like kind of working on her, like, or sort of dismantling and her, her the stuff on her computer. And uh, somebody had asked me to back up some stuff on a hard drive. And so I was doing that kind of thing. And, and so as I was there in her office, I was kind of help cleaning things out. And I opened this drawer and there, like on the top of a stack of papers in this drawer is a post-it note, like with my dad's handwriting on it Mm. and it was such like and it was just like the it was just like one of those moments where they get that where i just had like the wind knocked out of me it was like what the hell like what is this and you know because i'm sure you would recognize your dad's handwriting if you saw it my dad had this very uh, sort of you know very specific all caps way that he wrote oh like mf doom all caps (laughs) exactly and my dad uh, uh you know was a big Doom fan, or would have been if he had <laughs> made it past 97. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, 
so yeah, and it actually made sense that it might be there because, like I said, this was uh, this woman lived right across the street from my uncle, and my dad had stayed uh, there like o- over the years sometimes when he was working out of town, and so I don't know what it was. It was just like handwritten directions to somewhere in Encinitas. Like I don't know, mm-hmm. like what the heck it was, but just you know to to have that moment and just see that it's just like it's like it's like seeing a ghost, you know, and, yep. it, and it's like you know, and I and I think about it now, and it's like I have one other uh physical example of my dad's handwriting and it's this mm-hmm. it's this like hand drawn guitar chord chart that he did on a paper towel <laughs> that, oh, wow. that that I have which is a cool thing I have and I actually put it in a frame and stuff I was going to say if you don't have that frame dude you got to that's really cool yeah and you know, it's a, it's a really neat thing and and so so yeah, I mean, so that that's just an interesting story to me of, of just finding something that is that's always stuck with me. It's just like wow, what a what a bizarre and kind of cool ultimately experience. Yeah, and the and the and description of it being like seeing a ghost I, that really resonates. Uh, there's a uh, obviously you know this infinite ability to capture things these days and to publish them and to show them to everyone. But uh, yeah, not that long ago, just uh, not the case. And to see remnants of someone's life, especially someone that you know and love, or someone that you are connected to um yeah that could be a, a real trip it yeah be, uh, a deep experience yeah it certainly was and it's something that i'll think about from time to time and, and yeah and and i think because of that anniversary you know my dad has been coming up in my mind even more than usual and so it's just an interesting thing to sort of you know look back on at this point but uh, but anyway how about you like have you have you ever come across or, or found anything that comes to mind that 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 was interesting or memorable to you yeah well you know i was, I was talking a lot about looking for records and you know, part of that is uh, that you go to flea markets a lot, especially back in the older days. Um, and um, when I moved up to Oakland, I spent a lot of weekends going to the flea markets in Oakland, Ashby and Laney. Mm. And, uh, you know, the, the, the way a lot of um, records would be excavated and then brought to these flea markets is that just like someone would die or like they'd move yeah. or, you know, whatever it is. And they would just, you know, have a a clearance of their possessions or however that would work, uh, someone would acquire large troves of stuff and bring it to these flea markets. And um, alongside of those uh, those records, of course, were were other items. And so, you know, you'd you'd sometimes just find, like, the strangest things. And you you mentioning your... uh, your discovery of that of that of that post-it note. I mean, you'd see stuff like that, and it would be it would be so um, interesting and, and sad because you would you know that to someone the, these kind of trivial items that would be laying out on someone's mat when they were selling stuff at a flea market that those meant something to someone. And, yeah. Um, so I, I, it, it makes me think of this story. I actually texted my friend uh, Matt Matt Valerio uh, this mm. week because I couldn't remember exactly what the the details were. Hi, Matt. Uh, <laughs> it's a but it's a funny story. It's um we, we used to collect records around the same time, go to flea markets around the same time, all that kind of stuff. So uh, in Long Beach in a flea market one time uh, several years ago, uh, he was uh, he found a box of just like old photos, kind of you know, f- someone's uh, collection of photos, personal yeah. photos, printed photos. Mm. And uh, inside uh, he discovered uh, that there were two pictures of Jamie Foxx. In them. And um, <laughs> one was a picture of him in Biz Marquee, and the other okay. one was a picture of Jamie with a Big giant afro wig, and he's hanging it with a, a young woman. There's they're younger pictures of, of of him. Okay, but very cool find, like a funny thing. Yeah, that's, know, where where did these come from? That's really cool. And uh, the 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 thing that I had totally forgotten about the story is that later, uh, a couple years ago, Matt uh, ended up meeting Jamie Fox in person, and oh. knew he was going to be knew he was going to be meeting him, so he brought these photos to to show him <laughs> and to say, yeah, what's you know here are these and, and what are they and. Uh, the first story is that Jamie used to carry records for uh, Biz. Oh. Uh, hip-hop fan, giant hip-hop fan Jamie Foxx. When he was not old enough to get into the hip-hop clubs, he used to sneak in by carrying records for, for Biz. Uh. He was loading in. So pretty cool. And they, and they stayed yeah, uh, awesome. friends over the years. Yeah. Uh, so that was, the, that was the source of that one. And then uh, the other one, he, um, Jamie remembered exactly who the young woman was in the picture. Mm. Um, and uh, didn't remember where it was taken or what the context was, but but yeah, just a funny story of finding something unclear how it got to this box of random photos at a flea market in Long Beach. Uh, Matt then you know acquired them and took them to Jamie Foxx, yeah. and he was able to get some pretty cool context on how these pictures came to be, if not how they came to be, uh, and at a box at a Long Beach flea market. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's an awesome story. Yeah. 
That's really cool. Um, well, okay. I mean, you you think it's uh, should we should we go ahead and get into the into the interview with Bianca? Yeah, I um, I will say this quickly that I you know just want to say how affected I was by the film. I think also it's it's sort of interesting that it's almost like this detective story trying to pull mm. apart you know everything, every little detail that's in the film. That, that's that's sort yeah. of how uh, I, I found it to be the most effective as a as a you know a visual piece. Yeah, uh, yeah, hundred percent. That very very well said. And and uh, I think Bian- you know Bianca obviously you know deeply invested in, in, in this and, and, and did a, an amazing job. And, and she had a lot of, you know, interesting insights uh, and, and things to say about it when, when I talked with her. So, um, so with that, yeah, let's go ahead and listen to uh, my interview with Bianca Stichter. Hi, Bianca. Thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me today. I appreciate it. What a great name, Be True. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. So uh, first, j- just to inform our listeners, uh, your film, uh, the film we're discussing, Three Minutes uh, Lengthening, is built around three minutes of footage shot in Nazielsk, I think I got yes. that right, Poland, in 1938. It was shot by David Kurtz and then later found by his grandson, Glenn, and documented in his book, Three Minutes in Poland. Um, would you mind telling us how you first learned about the existence of this film and what intrigued you about it? Um, well, I I found it while I was uh, scrolling on Facebook. Oh, really? In, uh, way back in 2014. And oh, wow. uh, I saw a post called Three Minutes in Poland. So that was a very intriguing um, title. So I clicked on it and it uh, turned out to be the name of a book written by Glenn Kurtz containing this footage his grandfather who had emigrated from Nashelles to the United States as a child. And he went back um, um, when he was on holiday in Europe in 1938. He, you know, visited the normal touristic sites, but he also made a detour to visit his hometown, Nashelles, in, in Poland, not so far from Warsaw. So, um, I read that post, I ordered the book, and I went over to the website of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, Mm. where you could immediately see the footage, as you still can um, today. And I was uh, watching it, and I was immediately very uh, fascinated by it, and really into it, because, uh, firstly, because it's in uh, color. Yeah. We tend to, you know think of that part of history as almost as if it happened in black and white, but surely the <laughs> most um, uh, records of it are in um, black and white photographs and film. Uh, here you see it in, in glorious, albeit a bit faded, uh, color. So that brought it much uh, closer uh, to you. It gave it something very contemporary. And then you see a kind of vibrant portrayal of a, of a Jewish uh, community with all uh, kids that really want to be seen looking into the lens, trying to stay in the frame, yeah. walking with um, David Kurtz. And um, while I was trying to take it all in, then poof, it was over. Three minutes, yeah. quite short. So I immediately thought, wouldn't it be fantastic if we could make this experience this somehow longer to lengthen it. But I was not um, working as a filmmaker at all, so more Mm. as a critic. So I didn't do anything with this thought. But a few weeks later, the Rotterdam Film Festival um, asked me to, for their Critics' Choice program, asked me to do a video essay that was just coming into fashion then oh, okay and usually they are like you know critics um saying something about a contemporary mostly fiction film but i asked them can't i do something with this uh, old footage and i said okay go and try so i contacted uh, glenn and interviewed him and he gave me made the museum give me access to the footage and then we made a short 
version of, let's say, 25 minutes that we presented in Rotterdam at the festival. But I had the feeling we're not ready. There's still more to to uh, to find out and to show here. So I looked for a producer and found one, Floor Onrust, and then worked another five years uh, <laughs> to make the documentary as it is now. Yeah, I mean, so this film ends up being almost 70 minutes and is comprised entirely of images from those three minutes of footage, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Is that how you envisioned it from the beginning? Or did you consider making a version with like talking head interviews and additional footage like you might typically see in other documentaries? No, I knew from, from, from the start that I wanted to give this footage, um, let this footage be the main, main focus and take um center stage to really show you know the raw power of of film as a recording um medium yeah it was is very um does something that no other art form no painting or sculpture um can do and yeah. it's so evident in this uh footage and of course also because it's very rare to have a color footage of a Jewish community from 1938. Um, everything about it um, becomes interesting and everything you can find out about it becomes kind of a, a small victory and a, and a revelation that works against the erasure that was intended by the, by the Germans. Right, right. It's no small feat to to stretch three minutes of footage into over an hour. Um, what what kind of challenges did that create for you to sort of keep the film fresh visually as it as it moved along? Yeah, we worked very hard on that to find a good um, um, rhythm for that. Let's say because yeah, you you have to keep it interesting and not let it start to bore people. That then I would have. Uh, really uh, done the material uh, uh, this service. That's yeah. why I, it took us quite long because then you could try things out and think mm -hmm, think about it a few weeks and then uh, this did, this does not really um, work. But we had I had let's say two strands that I wanted to follow. And on the one hand, to just um, let the material be, let it breathe and be on the screen and for people to have the impression that they can roam it uh, freely you know it's kind of open um, attitudes and the second uh, strand was to try to um, extract as much information as we could possibly uh, find from the old celluloid i'm always uh, interested in you know what is what is film how does this work what is the difference between written testimony and and mm. visual uh, records and that sort of thing was also one of my interests with this uh, documentary yeah um one of the examples of a very interesting choice you made i thought was uh, the sequence where you continually zoom in on the marketplace while we hear the story of the horrors uh, of that these people in Najels would be put through. Um, mm -hmm. Did you have like a specific thinking or, or intention with that sequence when you were putting it together? Um, well, one of the principles, let's say you have to choose when and what information are we going to tell. Um, and I thought I need things that always have a direct link to to the visual, to really to the to the things we see. And on the other hand, we had this uh, eyewitness testimony of the deportation of the um, Jewish inhabitants of Nasjelsk in one day in December 1939. So one and a half years later, then the footage was uh, filmed. And the only visual link is that this happened on the market square that we see in the movie. And I thought, okay, 
I don't want to cut into the eyewitness account. I want to uh, let it be heard in its entirety. And then I also want to show the the one thing that that we have is is the actual place where it happened. So then I thought, okay, we'll zoom in on that uh, on the, the the pavement of the of the market square. Yeah. And that image then, of course, becomes more abstract the more we we uh, almost imperceptibly um, zoom in. And then I hope it also makes you think about the differences between text and image and absences and presences and what we do have as records and what we don't have as um, records. Ah, yeah. Visual or written. Yeah, I think it does for sure. And I, and I think what, what you were saying about it becoming more and more abstract as you zoomed in, I, I almost felt like it, you know, it somehow, you know, it, it's literally drawing you into the horror of this story at the same time. And I think because the visual is kind of skewing your mind a bit to see like, what is it that I'm looking at? It, it somehow pronounced the, 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 the story that was being told even more. Mm -hmm. I thought it was really, really compelling. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and one, uh, one, another really interesting sequence, uh, you have what uh, I believe are voice actors uh, speaking a variety of words that may likely have been heard uh, in the setting inside the building. How did that scene come about? Oh, when I started uh, the research, of course, I had um, Glenn's book, which I highly recommend, Three Minutes in Poland. Mm -hmm. um, which contains uh, much more information than than we could have in the film. But I also tried to do some more um, research, for instance, in all my naivety, I thought, if we have a lip reader who can speak Yiddish, we can oh. hear what the people are saying, because you know, oh, wow. lips are moving. And then we found, we found two, two lip readers who could... Who could uh, speak um, Yiddish that was uh, spoken at that time. And they both said, no, it's the fragments are too short or mm. too um, blurry for us to, with any certainty, say what they what they said. So, And then I thought, well, um, let's go with a bit more creative approach. Um, in any conversation, there are words that you can you know, predict, um, people will say in our conversation now, we will use the word film and we'll use the word Nashelsk and the word you and, you know, yeah, yeah. that sort of thing. So I thought I'll just make a kind of abstract of a conversation with words that it is highly probable, probable that they were uh, spoken there. And then I at a different uh, people who speak different languages, Yiddish, English, Polish, um, um, say them and we recorded it and made a kind of, yeah, kind of abstract of a conversation, let's say. You, in the film, you talk about a, a process that was used to clean up and, and in some cases um, actually augment the footage uh, was that something that Glenn Kurtz had worked on, or was it your choice to incorporate visual effects? Um, that was um, uh, that we 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 did while working on the on the film, and I thought, of course, we we didn't have the resources like, uh, for instance, the Peter Jackson's "They Shall Not Grow Old," where it's wonderfully done with footage from the First World War. Um, so we had that um, made a kind of digitally cleaned up um, version, but in the end, we used it much less than I had expected because yes, for a few seconds, it gives you the uh, feeling that it's um, more modern, but after a while, it 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 becomes a bit as if you're watching through an aquarium very blurry and blah, blah, blah. so <laughs> that's although the the original footage is much more grainy it also has something much more sharp so 
has a much more gives you that that's that feeling of authenticity that you are really watching something that that was made there and then so in the end that that took precedent over the the seemingly seemingly more modern uh, uh, variety oh, yeah. but i just you know we just tried a lot of things things out like i also thought okay what would be the most contemporary way to present this would be as a kind of 3D computer model. So we had that um, made of the square as well, because that's kind of way where a lot of young people now um, access the world through that kind of um, right. So we that's... just try to go at it. The film was the, 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 the main focus for me and then try to go at it. it in a lot of um, different ways. Obviously, you spend a tremendous amount of time with this film and this footage and with these people. Uh, did you find that you formed any sort of special attachments or relationships with any of the individuals uh, we see in the film? Um, yes, I think I also heard that also even for viewers that it works like like that, that you... At the beginning of the film, you see the three and a bit minutes in its entirety, and at the end as well. And then because yeah. of all the things you've heard and and uh, seen in 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 between, you watch them the second time quite differently. You recognize um, um, different people or pay more attention to that girl with the with the short hair or the girl yeah. with the braid or the boy with the cap between his teeth and <laughs> that sort of thing yeah the boy that keeps shoving his tongue in his cheek you um you had an opportunity to you interviewed uh, maurice chandler one of the only living survivors uh did you meet him in person yes we went to he lives in uh, uh after the war he he went to America and lives in Detroit with his family, and they kindly um, received uh, Glenn and me there for the interviews that you hear in the in the film. Oh. And that, of course, that he is actually his uh, granddaughter, Marcy Rosen, just just like I did um, a few years earlier, watched the footage on the website of the Holocaust Museum. And recognized her own grandfather. Oh and, yeah, yeah. And then, um, then he also um, saw the footage and and said to to them, "Now you know I'm not from Mars." <laughs> of course, you know it was a culture that was the people were destroyed. The, the culture was destroyed. He yeah. Couldn't show anything of this, and now he had something that could actually. Um, show of his uh, of his childhood, and I think his his um, his tremendous voice. Um, when for me the film is a historical document, right? Yeah. For him, it is his past, his lived history. So that of course um, makes the images quite different to 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 hear the get a very different um, um, get a very different outlook uh, on them if you have someone who can actually tell you uh, about them but also then you, you you realize much more that it's just a very small fragment of a, a vibrant life and a vibrant uh, community. Thank you so much for taking the, the time to chat. Can you tell people where they can view the film right now? Yeah, I think from the from the 19th of August, it will play in uh, L.A. and uh, New York in the theaters. And then uh, the week after in, in different towns in the, in the U.S. Thank you so much. It's an amazing piece of work. Thank you. Hey, thank you again to Bianca Stiegter for, for taking the time to chat with us about this uh, really uh, incredible film. Yeah, um, great, great interview, man. Great interview. I, I was uh, really good to hear from her and uh, enjoyed that. 
Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. No, so I thought she was obviously super thoughtful and interesting and intelligent. And, and it's, um, yeah, it was very, you know, fascinating to hear about her, her process and some of the details about, you know, creating the film. And yeah, you know, and, and as you were saying earlier, uh, you know, this was a really uh, affecting movie and, um, and it really, and I got to admit it, like it really hit me pretty hard, you know, like, and I think the big part of the the reason for that is like, you know, like we've said a few times, it's like that this, this footage, um, is of the, this, uh, this Jewish community in, in, in Poland. Um, and you know, families and kids there's a lot of kids just laughing and you know and they don't they don't have experience with cameras and so they're just mugging for the camera and you know i guess all of like or almost all of the the pictures or videos you see around uh the holocaust are really of the whole nightmare while it's in progress right right or, or but, afterwards like sort of these re reflections of the survivors you know which is uh, of course very valuable but yeah you don't see stuff like this so this is a very unique document it's uh, something that happened you know, in, in a very short time span before uh, the Holocaust and uh, before all the stuff that you know about it. Yeah. And it just, um, I mean, there, you know, there's so many reasons that affected me. The one is seeing the faces. You know, there's so many yeah. of the kids that run out because, like you said, in 1938, it was uncommon to see someone with a film camera out on the street. And so everyone ran out and wanted to be on, on, on film. And, um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, what you get as a result is so much information about, uh, you know, there, there's so much information just embedded in a single image. And um, when you have three minutes of this footage, uh, these days, I mean, three minutes of video, you know, it's just take it, doing whatever and post it up and everyone can see it. But this rare document and uh, about a time that people are not very familiar with or conversant of, uh, around the details of, when you really look at it, and that's what she does. She stretches this three minutes into this, you know, long meditation almost on on, on what it was like yeah. to be there, and, and and you see the faces, and she closes in on signs on the storefronts, and yeah. uh, you can you, you you look at all the clothes that people are wearing, and you can make inferences on who they were based on what they were doing or what they were wearing or how they moved, and um and and that information being able to to pull it all out and to investigate it is was uh, was very powerful to get a sense of these people as actual people and not characters in a history book you know there's the um the um the, the survivor that she uh spoke to or uh, was interviewed and uh, who who appears throughout the film Morris Chandler and there's a moment where he sees um, right. part of the film, he sees himself he sees, as, a, as a child and he's right. got a big smile on his face and he says with this sort of resigned uh, uh, tone as an older man, uh, wow, you know, I was, um, there I am smiling and I must have been, must have been happy or something. And it's just, it just killed me. Yeah. These were real people, you know, these were, uh, each one of them had no idea what was to come and they were all living a life that you just see one little moment of, but it's, yeah. uh, yeah, people living lives with no idea what's around the corner. And like you said, it's, it's interesting to think about, you know, the level of sort of detail and zooming in and scrutinizing every little frame and it, and it just makes me think that like you know how much like we see every day in our life that is just every almost everything goes falls into the background right mm -hmm. because and i think part of that is based on this assumption that it's always going to be there you know and and yep. that's that's just not obviously not necessarily the case yeah and you know so yeah i i guess you know i i we, I I think we I think we both kind of agree this is really tremendous and and highly recommended viewing, um, but also uh, very heavy and we were both very emotionally affected by it. Um, Absolutely, but, yeah. yeah. But also couldn't recommend it more as, as something to you know to really sit and experience with and like meditate is a good word to sort of sit there and, and meditate on on what on what this all means and what this all this history means and, and and that these people were real people and that you know some months later they were just erased and mm -hmm. it's it's uh, yeah it's it's something else and i think the thing that is you know very you know difficult to process not to put too fine a point on it or state the obvious but it's just like when you it's so hard to reconcile like the ability for humans <laughs> to have a level of cognitive dissonance that would allow them to murder a child like like to to see a kid who in every measurable way is identical to their own but see them as so significantly other and subhuman 
and actually feel a sense of righteousness that the right thing to do is to eradicate them. Like you can't possibly make sense of that. And right. we see and, and, and we see the same cognitive dissonance in, in the world today, of course, everywhere. And, and and I will I will be honest and say that like my, my initial reaction was like a very was a real sense of hopelessness around that. It's like, wow man, like this may be a fatal flaw in just the human animal. Uh, maybe we'd all be better off if the meteor just came tomorrow, you know. But like <laughs> yeah. but then uh, you know, I I but I, I tried to I tried to sit with it and, and process it and, and I and and think through it and, and um and I was thinking about how like you know in our last episode we talked with Leonard Cohen or not with Leonard Cohen that would have been amazing that would have been great <laughs> <laughs> been quite a scoop that would yeah, that would have that would have made headlines uh, <laughs> uh, anyway uh, we talked about Leonard Cohen and, and his song Hallelujah and, and in the documentary um, about uh, Hallelujah Leonard Cohen says you look around and you see a world that cannot be made sense of you either raise your fists or you say hallelujah um, I try to do both and um, so you know once I got past uh, hoping for the end of humanity <laughs> I thought Yes, you know, it's true that this capacity for cognitive dissonance is, uh, it's irreconcilable, it's extremely disturbing. Um, but if you also see the fact that at the same time, like in the face of that chaos and the violence and awfulness, um, humans, uh, people, <laughs> we also have the ability and the impulse to create, right, to take to right. in, you know in the face of this to make a film like three minutes um a lengthening or to write a song like hallelujah and you know just trying to find some you know a glimmer of, of hope in all of this you know I, I i can look at that and say like at least like you know that demonstrates like you know that there's also a, a profound strength and beauty in, in, in the human heart and mind and it's not all just you know uh just trash <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's not all just terribleness yeah i mean something along those lines occurred to me when i was watching it's like you know this this uh the, the filmmaker can make a film about anything and uh to choose this subject and to choose this treatment and to make it a work of art beautiful in a way like like it's yes. uh, it's horrifying subject matter and uh difficult and sad and uh it's also a commemoration of these people and yes. so it's not sad in the sense that you're seeing part of these lives that was joyous. And I, I appreciated that aspect of it too. So what you're saying, you know, about the sort of capacity for cognitive dissonance, but then also the capacity for beauty and these all being parts of the human nature. Uh, these are all things I was thinking about too. Like she could make a film about anything. She made it about this. I was very grateful that she did. And then I was very grateful yeah. that it was um, ultimately such a beautiful work of art. Yeah, likewise. Uh, well, that's, uh, I feel like, a great uh, great note um, to end on. Uh, thanks, uh, Eric, for uh, chatting with me about this today. Thanks again to Bianca. And thank you to everyone who listened to uh, Actual Facts, a uh, documentary podcast. And we hope to see you next time.